100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, Preservation Maryland is honored to present our contribution to the national efforts illuminating this important history, Ballot and Beyond. Hello, I'm Diana Bailey, Executive Director of the Maryland Women's Heritage Center. We're thrilled to partner with Preservation Maryland by expanding the Ballot and Beyond podcast project with stories of valiant Maryland women who worked for suffrage. In addition to featuring suffragists, several of these new podcasts also represent significant women whose historic contributions and achievements have led to their induction into the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame. Our mission at the Maryland Women's Heritage Center is to add her story to history to tell our story in all aspects of our lives. We are especially concerned with representing the critical intersectionality of race and gender in the history of the suffrage movement. As new documentation comes to light, we are sharing the important contributions of African Americans and many other diverse women and men who sought equality, inclusion, and justice for all. Enjoy the podcast and continue to share their stories. This episode of Ballot and Beyond was written and read by Kathy Santora, a volunteer with the Maryland Women's Heritage Center. Here comes the story of the mother-daughter team of Lucy Fisher Gwynn Branham and Lucy Branham. Two of the gutsiest Maryland women who fought for the 19th Amendment were Lucy Fisher Gwynn Branham and her daughter, Lucy Branham. Some of their Southern-based family disapproved, but it didn't stop mother and daughter from picketing and traveling the country to get women into the voting booth. The younger Lucy Branham would come to be among the most visible suffrage crusaders, but both Branhams were arrested and jailed for their belief that women didn't need to win the right to vote, but rather their rights as citizens had been denied to them. We don't know Lucy Fisher Gwynne Branham, the elder's exact birth date. Her husband, Dr. John W. Branham, was an assistant surgeon in the U.S. Marine Hospital Service and was stationed in Stapleton, New York. The service sent Dr. Branham to Georgia during a yellow fever outbreak. He instead became sick himself. His death left Mrs. Branham with two infant children, including daughter Lucy, and not much money. Born in 1892 in Kempsville, Virginia, and raised in Baltimore, daughter Lucy graduated from Washington College in Maryland with a history degree. She earned a master's degree from Johns Hopkins University and a PhD from Columbia University. These alone were remarkable accomplishments for a 19th century woman. Branham wasn't just smart, but apparently fearless as well. When she was 23 years old, she saved the life of a drowning woman in Florida. Branham saw Miss Demma Nelson struggling in the water. She ran 150 feet to the end of a dock. Fully dressed, except for her shoes, she dove in and swam to Miss Nelson, who was nearly unconscious. She pulled her to shallow water where other help awaited. For her actions, Branham was awarded a Carnegie Hero Medal, a prestigious award given to people who risked their lives to save others. 
Both Branhams joined the National Women's Party, often called the NWP, which was organized by Alice Paul and Lucy Burns in 1913. The NWP wanted the women's suffrage issue resolved once and for all on a national level by a constitutional amendment. Paul and Burns were inspired by the raucous labor activist parades and protests in Great Britain that brought attention to the cause of workers and the women's movement. NWP members were way more rebellious than their counterparts in the National American Women's Suffrage Association. While those suffragists gave speeches in auditoriums, gathered in parlors, and met quietly with their legislative representatives, NWP members took to the streets. They picketed, paraded, and openly challenged President Wilson to bring the weight of his office to passing the 19th Amendment. At first, there wasn't much progress. The NWP believed that President Wilson was not taking them seriously, and they decided on a much more radical approach to protest in front of the White House. Today, political rallies happen there almost every day. However, these were the first civil rights demonstrations in history to take place at the White House and across the street in Lafayette Square. Some thought the suffragist demonstrations in Washington were frivolous since the U.S. was facing the real possibility of entering a world war. To suffragists, though, it was hypocritical for President Wilson to tell the world that we were fighting for democracy while denying half of its population the right to vote. Both Branhams took part in these protests, known as the Silent Sentinel demonstrations, throughout 1917. Instead of shouting and singing, the NWP women did not utter a word. They simply stood, stylishly dressed in dark coats and white sashes, and carried their pointed messages on handwritten signs. The messages on the signs spoke directly to President Wilson. Mr. Wilson, what will you do for women's suffrage? Mr. Wilson, how long must women wait for liberty? Kaiser Wilson, have you forgotten your sympathy with the poor Germans because they were not self-governed? 20 million American women are not self-governed. Take the beam out of your own eye. Mr. President, you say liberty is the fundamental demand of the human spirit. The silent sentinels appeared at the White House every single day. Onlookers threatened and taunted them. It was variously hot, cold, windy and rainy throughout the seasons. The NWP had at least one advantage. Its headquarters at 722 Jackson Place was just steps away from the White House, allowing women to easily fortify their colleagues with drinks, hot bricks, and friendship. They pressed on despite the emerging world war, afraid that the war would distract from their cause. And not surprisingly, tensions rose and President Wilson became irked with the ongoing spectacle. Police began to arrest the women, including the younger Lucy, for obstructing traffic, not a crime. The women refused to pay the fines, arguing that they were being punished for political beliefs. Police, never believing for a moment that the NWP women would take jail time instead of paying a fine, then delivered these so-called criminals to the district jail. At first, they were sentenced to just a few days in jail. Later, the sentences eventually stretched to weeks and months. Eventually, police began taking women to the Okaquan Workhouse in Lorton, Virginia. Okaquan was a sordid place of dirt, 
rats, and cruel guards. No family contact was allowed. At times, guards physically threw their detainees into concrete cells and open sewage. Women like Lucy Branham continued their protest inside with hunger strikes. Jail officials then fed them by force, a painful and traumatic procedure in which guards tied the women down, inserted tubes in their noses and throats, and filled them with eggs and milk. By then, word began to spread about this treatment. Many disagreed with the idea of women's suffrage, but still found these punishments appalling. President Wilson started to soften his opposition to the suffragists. However, the NWP believed that he still was not moving fast enough. Undaunted, both the NWP women and the Branhams pressed on. The NWP devised a new protest strategy. In those days, President Wilson touted the U.S.'s cherished belief in democracy as justification for entering World War I. The women believed that Wilson was a hypocrite. He traveled the world giving speeches about democracy, while the women of the United States could not represent themselves at the polls. Members gathered with copies of the president's speeches and burned them in urns outside the White House. Both Branhams and many others were arrested during these watchfires of freedom protests. The NWP were masters at the art of public relations to change people's minds about suffrage. When the jailing of women eventually came to a stop, the NWP opted to continue to tell the story of the horrific treatment, this time all over the country. In February 1919, 26 members of the National Women's Party, including Lucy, boarded a chartered train called the Democracy Limited and set out from Washington, D.C. They visited cities from east to west and spoke to large crowds about their experiences as political prisoners in Okokan Workhouse. To bring the point home, they wore their prison garbs and minced no words about the poor food, violence, and forced feeding that they endured. One of the most famous photos of the suffrage movement is of Lucy Brown and the Younger, dressed in prison garb, calling on the crowd to support suffrage. Finally, the 19th Amendment was passed on June 4, 1919, and later ratified on August 18, 1920. The quiet determination of the National American Women's Suffrage Association and the more militant ways of the National Women's Party complemented each other and led to victory. The Branhams and women who fought for suffrage demonstrated for days on end in all kinds of weather. They traveled thousands of miles on trains, motor cars, and on foot. They endured spitting, heckling, physical assaults, and vicious treatment in jails. Decades later, in the 1950s, the Branhams lived out their lives at the National Women's Party headquarters in Washington, D.C., now the Sewell Belmont House. Tragically, after the elder Branham died, her daughter was so overcome with grief that she required a long period of hospitalization. Today, most of us have the luxury of stepping up to a polling place and casting a vote without a second thought. And that's just the way that Lucy Fisher Gwyn Branham and her daughter, Lucy Branham, would have wanted it. Thank you to our many Maryland's Heritage Center volunteers who researched, edited, and brought these stories to the community by reading these podcasts. Researchers and historians are always seeking information about women and their stories. Our efforts to find and document their contributions is ongoing. If you have letters, articles, memorabilia from your past or in your attic or basement, 
please share with us so that we can continue to fill in the unsung heroine stories for a richer understanding of Maryland women and their contributions to our history. To donate materials or to make a financial gift in support of this work, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. When you're there, you can also listen to biographies from season one and see historic images and transcripts from each episode. If you're inspired by these remarkable women, please share this podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, and students. And rate us on Apple Podcasts or head over to preservecast.org to make a donation. Thank you. Ballot and Beyond is a multimedia history project powered by Preservation Maryland and our award-winning podcast, PreserveCast. It's produced with financial support from Gallagher, Evelius, and Jones, Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. With a Heritage Fund grant from Preservation Maryland and the Maryland Historical Trust, Season 2 was researched, written, and read by the Maryland Women's Heritage Center.